All right, so this is episode five of Unstandardized English. I am, as ever, JPB Gerald, and we are talking about native speakerism in this episode. Now, look, if you are anywhere near the field of language studies, whether you've been a student of it or a teacher within it or just a scholar who likes these things or you're just somebody who knows who I am and likes to hear the podcast, you probably heard about native speakerism, right? We've been talking about this for a really long time. The oldest article I could find on the internet, and that doesn't mean it's the oldest one in existence, but the oldest one I could find about native speakerism is older than I am. It's from the early 80s. And so here we are in 2019, and we're still talking about it. And not that much has changed. If you go and look at ads, for, especially for postings outside of the United States, it still specifies native speaker or native speaker-like. Um, we can get deeper into why that's problematic, although if you know from what we do on this podcast, you know that a lot of the problem is racism uh, and other forms of bigotry. But uh, it's also, frankly, a problem in terms of actual you know, competence in the sense that being a native speaker doesn't make you a better teacher. Uh, I would argue it often makes you a worse teacher. But the point is it doesn't make you a better teacher, and that's the, the important thing. Uh, and people throw up their hands. They say that there's nothing they can do about it because, say, if a school in, I use my own experience, if a school in South Korea asks for native teachers, then who am I, the person connecting people with jobs, to reject that? Who am I to say that we should not feed people to these schools? So we're stuck in this, this, this mode where you know people understand native speakerism is bad, but nothing's being done. Right? Very little is being done. If you're at least in an American or a Canadian or even British company, they might know enough because they're in the field not to use the phrase native speaker, but then who's actually getting hired? Think about that. So in this episode, the idea isn't just to discuss what native speakerism is, although we will do that, um, but to discuss, to have a dialogue around what we can actually do to actually make some progress on native speakerism so that people who are classified as non-native speakers, like the person I'm going to speak with in this episode, are not denied opportunities that they really deserve. Because as I said at the beginning, just because you were born in a country that speaks English primarily, does not mean you know any single thing about teaching the language. So this one had some audio issues, man. Some real issues. Not just the volume, which I seem to have kind of fixed, although it's kind of quiet, but my phone, which I dropped over the summer, every so often shoves another program onto my screen when I don't want it to. Now, that's not a problem when I'm just recording in front of it or if I'm recording with another person, like in episode two with uh, Lydia. But if I'm recording over the phone and another program decides to show up for no reason, then it's going to cut out the audio because it wants to use the audio from whatever program I'm doing. That's way too much explanation. The point being, I'm going to have to do this NPR style where I jump in every so often to explain what happened in between with some music that's jazz in the background. People like that. I kind of hate that style. That's why I don't listen to NPR. But uh, I see now why they do it. They pick the best parts of the interview. 
I don't know that these are the best parts of the interview. In fact, I think some of the really good stuff got cut out, but well, that's just how it's going to be. But you will get the gist of the conversation and you will get to hear Parisa's perspective and hopefully it works out. So in part one, I have asked her to give me a short bio. Part of what was cut out is that she is from Iran and she now works as an English language teacher in Japan. I asked her, you know, to tell me about ads for native speaker only positions. And she says basically that she gets a lot of her work through networking. So this is sort of a little bit of elaboration onto that point. My uh, PhD was focused on uh, computer system language learning, and I designed an online course for um, undergrad students at the Stockholm University. And uh, now, now I'm on a uh, working visa status, so I officially work here. And um, well, um, that's actually a very good question. Um, So, um, I obviously came across you through the internet, um, and in our sort of discussions and dialogues about racism in English language teaching. Uh, so, you have mentioned that you don't apply if an ad specifically says native speaker uh, required for the position. Now, how this is not a scientific study, but how often would you say when you're looking for work uh, that that happens? Does it happen more often than it doesn't happen, or does it happen only occasionally, or are there times, this is sort of a second question, but you, I, I think you'll be okay, uh, that it doesn't say it, but that's what they want, so they're just sort of hiding what they want because they know it doesn't come off well. Now this time, uh, Paris is talking about a question that I asked where I asked um, why it might be unpleasant or uncomfortable for someone to, let's say they just need a job and they apply to one of these places that is requiring native speakers. Why, although it's presumably beneficial financially to get any job, uh, it will still be problematic, not just morally or whatever, but also in terms of the exploitative nature of positions that are going to require native speakerism as part of the job. In other words, a job that exists because of bigotry is going to make its bigotry known in the way that it treats its workers. And so this is part of how she explains that. They give you the job because you sound uh, 
sound like a native speaker, uh, which means you sound like a white person, um, probably because you don't have accents. This is what they say, and we all know that we all have accents. So um, my point is that, well, um, your recruiters, um, uh, you know, are looking for um, another, <laughs> uh, I don't know, kind of teacher. So that's why um, I don't apply. I don't. And I don't want want to work in, uh, in that kind of um, work place. Uh, but the thing is, uh, the jobs that I found here in Japan, I found all of the, all of them through my connections. And the problem here in Japan is that a lot of these positions are not advertised. So honestly, I don't know if they if they want to. Um, advertise these positions. Um, do they use um, the word native speakers or not? I really don't know. Um, uh, but most probably they don't. At least um, at one of the um, universities that I teach. Uh, and it's because I see other um, so-called and labeled non-native teachers uh, there. So. Um, that's why, yeah, I really tried hard to find those uh, workplaces that are open to um, different kinds of teachers from different backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, um, different nationalities. Um, so, yeah, that's my point. And um, this is something that I see a lot. Um, uh, we, as uh, labeled non-native teachers, are encouraged to apply uh, to apply for those um, job ads, but no, I don't recommend it. Uh, honestly, no, I don't. <laughs> and of course, that's my idea. Well, that's good because, I mean, I... Um it's not what I expected. I, I knew about you and the connections because I know, you know, you've spoken about it to me, but uh, or on, online. But I really would have thought that it was still more common. Now, obviously, when I speak of my own experience, I'm talking 10, 12 years ago, and uh, you know, I don't even remember whether or not it said native speaker. I just applied without thinking about it. But I can tell you, I still would have applied if it said that because I didn't know anything about the industry. Um, and I think part of the issue is that there are some people who just don't care, obviously, but then there's a sort of a, a middle, a sort of people who feel like they care, but also feel like, well, I just really want a job, and how do you... You know, what would you say to those folks? You said, obviously, that they would end up working at a racist and toxic workplace. I agree with you. Yeah. However, yeah. I don't know that everybody would agree with that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying so you can help explain it to somebody who might not know. And what do you think will be in evidence at these uh, workplaces that would mean that someone, even if, okay, now they have a job that they might not have had otherwise, you know, that would make it not worthwhile for them. Yeah, yeah, thank you for, for um, asking this question, because I think it's fair, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, you really want to find a job uh, for, for any reason, yeah. Um, well, um, I think um, if you look different and if you're um, as a non-native uh, teacher, especially because of your physical appearance, because of your skin color, um, 
then um, I highly recommend uh, that person to read a lot on um, microaggression and um, yeah, this uh, term um, has been questioned because um, well, it's a kind of euphemism for racism. But, well, it exists, and if you Google, you will find a lot of resources. So you do need to read a lot because um, you need to know how to respond to those, um, uh, you know, uh, incidents. And, uh, um, you know, when the school uh, in general is not ready for you, you might get microaggressions from your students, not just from your colleagues or... Uh, from your recruiters. So, yeah, then you need to educate yourself. Because personally, um, I was not racially aware uh, when I came to Japan. Um, um, I really believe that racism exists everywhere, and it's not a white phenomenon. I know a lot of people um, don't agree, but I really believe that each um, country has its own racism. And in my country, it's not uh, uh, it's not skin color. Um, there are other issues. So that's why I really believe that I was racially um, unaware. And um, I really wish I had studied and I had more. Uh, I had known more about the issue beforehand. And uh, it's very interesting because um, sometimes I really feel like uh, here in Japan, I'm talking a lot about American um, or the because I'm reading a lot and I'm, I'm raised and a lot of these books, they, um, the authors mention that, uh, yeah, uh, the context uh, that uh, we are going to talk about is uh, the U.S. and Canada, and I can really relate, and I can really understand. Uh, so, um, and I think it's because um, ELT industry um, here in Japan uh, is very um, connected to American um, ELT, and uh, that's why um, I, as a non-American person. Uh, and as an Iranian person, I'm going through uh, American racism here, which is very, very, very interesting uh, to me, and that's why I keep uh, reading on un- race and language um, and uh, how they intersect and how we need to know about um, uh, history, you know, um, and why we need to know about history. So, yeah, I, I, I think you need to, to read a lot, especially if... Um, if you are not familiar with this kind of racism. Well, that brings up a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, Before I go into... So I'm going to get to how American racism manifests itself in Japan and in the ELT industry in Japan. So hold that thought. But (laughs) before I get there, you mentioned how racism isn't really quite based on skin color um, in your home country. So if you could just give us a little bit about how how that manifests, uh, because I'm not sure people are as familiar, not just with your own country, but with places where it's not just, you know, this color is worse than that color. Right. 
Um, that's um, that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, well, I think that's because um, I I belong to the majority, you know, group back home, and um, um, the issues are um, more related to religion. And uh, now that I'm um, reading more on race. I know that um, um, there's a kind of um, history uh, in my country that I didn't know, and now I know that it's because I belong to the majority group. I didn't know about um, slavery in Iran. Now I'm reading on that. But again, before coming to Japan, I didn't know about these things. I uh, sometimes, yeah, I really feel like I was I was really ignorant. And it's because we have a lot of, um, you know, positive stereotypes back home, um, and probably people don't know. And uh, <laughs> and I really believe that positive stereotypes are also um, are also um, negative. <laughs> so uh, this is yeah. I think I kind of answered your question. Yeah. So in my country, yeah, it's mainly um, mainly. Um, about religion, not skin color. But again, um, now I know that yeah, some minority groups in my country um, are dealing with it because of their skin color. But I didn't know. Um, now that I'm more uh, racially aware uh, and I'm reading more on race, uh, definitely I'm reading on uh, race in my own uh, country. And now I know that yeah, that's uh, definitely. I didn't know, and it was not my issue back home. And this doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So that's why um, this kind of um, uh, racism to me here in Japan was quite new. So in this segment, she's talking about an unfortunate incident. She talks about the incident. The incident is that she was referred to as a terrorist in Japan. And that's one of the reasons why she thinks that the racism she experiences in Japan is sort of an Americanized version. Now, what she means by that, which we discussed in more detail in a part that kind of got deleted, unfortunately, is the particular American racism that we have where we um, filter it through our country um, and the references that we make, for example, terrorism for people from uh, Middle Eastern countries, and the fact that the industry in Japan is also based on an American or Canadian, but mostly American ideal. So instead of just having um, the type of racism that she spoke about in the previous segment, which was often based on religion that she has in Iran, uh, it is a very American racism that she's experiencing and dealing with and reading about which you'll hear about now. Yeah, this incident, um, uh, uh, yeah, was a, like, kind of like a turning point in my life. Um, I started reading a lot, and uh, recently I read a chapter by um, Professor uh, Kubota, and she talks about the history of... Um, English in Japan, and uh, yes, she uh, believes that um, the whole industry is uh, very um, American-oriented. I don't know if 
And finally, we unfortunately come to sort of our finale here.、Um, it lopped off the crescendo, it lopped off the、uh, climax of the discussion, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of what was discussed there was how organizations can work against native speakerism. And I won't speak for her, although I kind of am in doing this. But basically, the consensus we mostly came to is that if people are working for organizations that are not prioritizing true. Support for the marginalized. Like she, she makes a big point of just differentiating between equality and equity. Said,、uh, we, as in people of different groups, are not equal. We cannot simply decide we're going to hire one person and, and you know, equity is going to occur. Pretending everyone is equal is not too different, in my opinion, from colorblind racism. You're just saying, I don't see color and we will treat everyone the same, but we are not the same. Equity, on the other hand, is really supporting marginalized people so that they are less marginalized. And、um, I believe that that is the gist of what she is saying in her remarks. So that's a lot of what we missed in that discussion.、Uh, and then we sort of close here on a discussion of, because this is a podcast about words, what to say instead of saying native speaker? Do we just say, Home language, and then she speaks a little bit about mother tongue and other things that we could use. And we sort of come to a bit of a conclusion or a consensus between the two of us at the end of the discussion here. Yes, and then you do. The only thing is some of the things we've discussed, like home language or something like that. But it doesn't necessarily mean you learned it at home, right? That might be physically, that just might be inaccurate. You might have learned it just walk, like if you speak, for example, if you speak Spanish at home in New York, but you learned English because all of your friends speak English, and you speak at what people might classify as a, a, a native like level, you can still be a native, classified as a native speaker, even if you didn't speak it at home. So therefore, Using the phrase home is kind of, it just could, could be wrong, you know. I mean, yeah, I think so because,、um, you know, when I came to Japan, I feel like um, uh, my level is better, and of course, I don't like that one.、Uh, <laughs> but if we consider better、um, AFR, let's say when I Standard, you know, American.、Um, so yeah, 
And then gradually I felt like, yeah, I'm improving. And now, uh, yeah, I kind of consider myself as a C2 because I can understand and uh, I can communicate with um, people that they have different accents. Um, and especially uh, because uh, I have a lot of international friends, uh, international students, international friends. So, uh, you know, the, my point is that you keep learning. <laughs> and uh, that's why home, I, I, I'm not sure because, yes, in Japan I learn a lot. So, um, and I keep learning. <laughs> and I don't consider Japan as my home. So, again, maybe it's not a good term, but again, I need to emphasize that it's good that um, we are questioning this term. I think maybe the point is just that we shouldn't be depending upon this faulty binary. Exactly, yes. It's very, it's very complicated. It's a complex um, experience. And it's ongoing. Even my mother tongue, you know, um, I I feel like, um, uh, especially recently, I need to read more. Um, sometimes when when I write in my mother tongue, uh, I I def- I um, make a lot of mistakes. So and it's because um, from morning to night, I'm English, 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 tweeting in English. So yeah, uh, and I'm sure you know a lot of people actually use their mother tongue because of speaking English all the time. Um, so definitely, definitely no binary kind of um, uh, yeah, category. Yeah. All right. Dr. Moran, thank you for speaking with me. I hope the rest of your evening goes well. And uh, well, this will be up in, in a couple of weeks after the next one is put up this week. So, thank you for speaking with thank me. Thank you so much. And, uh, I, yeah, and I'll, I'll let you know when it's coming on. Sure. Looking forward to it. <laughs> So that's our little baby episode. It seems so short because my other ones have been between 40 minutes and an hour, but honestly, there are plenty of podcasts that are only 20, 25 minutes long. So, you know, maybe use this one when you have a shorter commute. Hopefully, the disjointed nature of it didn't make it so terrible for you. Uh, I really think native speakerism is a really important uh, topic, especially when it comes to racism. I apologize to Parisa because we only got to hear half of what she had to say. But um, if you're listening, it's really important to feature voices that are outside of the majoritized groups. Uh, It's what I'm trying to do on the podcast, and it's what I hope that you are all able to do in the work that you do and the work that you consume. You know, one of the things that I think we lost is the, the danger of telling one story. If you tell one story, you are necessarily crowding out the others. So it's important to try to tell stories about native speakerism from someone who is not classified as a native speaker. And that is the attempt that I was trying to make with this one, even if the technology did not want to cooperate. All right, well, I'll be back in two weeks as ever. Thanks for listening.